This episode is presented by Wild CBD. Wild produces the best tasting edibles on the market using real fruit and all natural flavoring. With flavors inspired by the Pacific Northwest, high quality ingredients, real fruit, and consistent dosing, Wild has become one of the leading cannabis edible producers in the country. Wild's new CBD line currently offers real fruit infused gummies in blackberry, huckleberry, lemon, and raspberry, and CBD infused sparkling water in raspberry, lemon, blackberry, and blood orange. Each gummy is dosed with 25 milligrams of CBD and can be purchased in a bottle of 10 or 20. Wild CBD is offering our listeners 30% off their next purchase from wildcbd.com. That's W-Y-L-D-C-B-D.com by using the code POD. That's code P-O-D for 30% off your next purchase. Wild CBD products are intended only for the use of individuals aged 18 and older. Wild CBD products should only be consumed as directed on the label and should not be used if you are pregnant or breastfeeding. All Wild CBD products are made with ingredients containing 0% THC. Consult a health professional prior to using Wild CBD in combination with any medication or other dietary supplements. Technical difficulties. You operator error. Yes, that was my fault. Everything has to be plugged into the to the right things, otherwise you can't hear shit. That's my fault. It was funny. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. Uh, all right, welcome to Open a Fucking Book. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. And we are Hunter Thompson. The final four. episode. The final episode. Uh, it's been a long trip, and uh, it's going to be a long one, so sit back and relax. At least I think it's going to be a long one. I guess it depends on how much time we spend fucking around. So, I guess just let's get into it. So, we last left Hunter and Sandy. They were in quite the marital strife. Um, Hunter was stepping out quite a bit. Sandy had getting been getting worse into her drinking and uh you know hunter's drug use obviously you know the losing of all the children so things were tough but hunter decided to get back into politics now this time it was more on the side of trying to direct the more liberal side into a cohesive political stance it's one of the things that's always been Republicans have always had this ability to get in line, right? This is what we stand for, and all the Republicans say, okay, this is what we stand for. On the left, the liberals always kind of been a modgepodge of, okay, well, I think this and this. Well, well, I think that and that. And that's one of the reasons we always have a hard time winning elections, I think, is because not all Democrats are always on the same page as to what our stances should be. And we're more um, individualists when it comes to what we believe. We don't just go with what we're told to go with. We kind of, you know, we believe what we fucking believe. This, this is the way it should be ran. And if you don't think that, well, then fuck you. And that's kind of one of our downfalls. I Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, 
the Bernie bros and, and the people for Joe Biden and, and other, everybody's getting in fights. It's like we're all on one side. Can we just work together? But that's been our biggest problem, I think, for a long time. And Hunter understood this. So he plotted a think tank conference, and his first concern was keeping the meeting top secret and invitation only. He selected Elko, Nevada, off Interstate 80 in the northern part of the state, a location so remote and so devoid of possibilities for fun that real work would have to be done. <laughs> nice. I can't go out and party if there's nowhere to party, so, I'm, so this is where we're going to put it. Now, in early February, uh, Hunter arrived in Elko for a, a full week before his guests. He reserved rooms at the Stockman's Hotel under the name of the Studebaker Society. They had to share the conference facilities with the players in the state bridge tournament, a situation that Hunter was fine with since it would provide the perfect cover for his top-secret talks. Uh, things didn't go well from the beginning, all the guests included Richard Goodwin, former speechwriter for JFK, his fiance Doris Kern, histor historian and former White House fellow to LBJ, and a few from the McGovern staff like Patrick uh, Cattle or Cattle, Rick Stearns and Sandy Berger, David Burke, later CBS News president, and of course, Jan Werner. They were constantly fighting over trivial matters. After all his prep work, he turned the session over to Werner and ran off the first evening with the babysitter brought along to care for Goodwin's son. According to Hunter, he ate acid and took the girl off to a truck stop 50 miles east, went into a parts store, and bought 16 tire checkers, iron pipes used by truckers to test the tire pressure, and when he got back the next day, he passed the clubs around to the room. Quote, okay, you bastards, if you want to argue, use these. <laughs> if you're going to argue, just beat each other to death with these fucking things. That's pretty much what he wants. And most of the people they interviewed, uh, you can read it in Gonzo, a lot of them still have the tire checkers. They have them put up in their houses somewhere. Oh, wow. Yeah, when I was reading that, it was like he took the babysitter, I'm thinking... Oh, God, what's he going to do with the fucking babysitter? But he just, he literally just took the babysitter and they went part shopping. He brought together the people from Kennedy's 68 campaign and McGovern's 72 campaign to try to bring the party together. He wanted to fill the, quote, genuinely ominous power vacuum that loomed over the country. By the end of it, the two camps came away with a fondness for one another, but ultimately there were no real breakthroughs. And Hunter pretty disappointed. Any Elko ideas really went into the making of Rolling Stone a bigger voice in politics. Now, it was around this time that Hunter started doing speaking engagements. Almost God damn near every author we've talked about at some point has, has started doing lecture tours. Uh, easy money. You can usually get picked up pretty quickly, especially if you're a bigger author. Uh, Haley did it. Douglas Adams did it. Uh, Twain did it. So nothing, uh, he didn't do anything prepared, just simple question and answer type stuff. Uh, for his fans, this was great. For everyone else that just showed up because the paper said a famous writer was speaking, it was a little confusing because they had no idea what questions to ask. The speech nights were crazy. 
Fans would cheer and holler when Hunter would call an elected official communist buttfuckers. <laughs> or anytime he would say fuck or cocksucker or when he drank from a bottle of wild turkey. Now, the problem was with these engagements is that at Hunter's core, believe it or not, he himself was quite shy. I know, but... Well, once you get a few drinks of liquid courage in you... Yeah, but he wasn't like somebody stand up in front of a bunch of people and just talk. And that's pretty much what all that is. So he had to become someone else in order to do them. Raul Duke, namely. And with Duke came a sort of uh, unexpectedness that wasn't best suited for college lectures. But Hunter always needed money, so he did the damn thing. And had a speaking engagement at... Duke University, which I had brought up to you uh, last night while we were cooking Thanksgiving dinner. Or while we were, yeah, while we were. It was yesterday afternoon while we were Yeah, cooking, cooking. Thanksgiving dinner, yeah. The student assistant who picked him up at Raleigh-Durham Airport greeted him with hashish and a bottle of wild turkey. Hunter indulged in both. When he showed up at the university's auditorium, the audience had been kept waiting for 45 minutes. Quote, I am very happy to be at the alma mater of Richard Nixon. Immediately, he opened up the floor to questions. He was asked whether he thought uh, former Governor Terry Stanford, who had run for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1972, might make another run in 1976. Hunter responded, quote, He was a party to the Stop McGovern movement at the convention, and he is a worthless pig fucker. <laughs> unaware that Stanford was then president of Duke University. The speakers, uh, the speakers committee sent a delegate, a, a delegate, a small blonde girl, out to give Hunter the hook. As she escorted him from the stage, he took an ice-filled tumbler of wild turkey and threw it against the velvet curtain, leaving a stain to remind Duke of his visit. Bravo. Gosh, he's so petty. He, uh, I don't have it in, but afterwards he met a bunch of fans out in the parking lot and gave the lecture he was going to give, the question and answer stuff, in the parking lot of Duke University. So he still talked. If you went there to see him, you probably, you, there's a good chance you still got to talk to him. Yeah, I just threw it right up against the curtain and walked out. Now, in September of 74, Hunter was asked to cover one of the biggest sports stories of the decade. Now, you remember back, I believe it was episode two, after their honeymoon, they drove to Vegas because he was supposed to cover a boxing match, which he never did. And I said it wouldn't be the last time he did that. Well, the Ali Foreman rumble in the jungle was another boxing match that he was contracted to cover. Hunter took the job. He wasn't about to turn down a free trip to Africa, and he called up Ralph Stedman to help cover the event. To say that this was a failed assignment may be a bit of an understatement. For the first, the fight had to be postponed because of Foreman's injury, so the journalists had six weeks to kill until the rescheduled fight at the end of October. Bill Cardoso from the Boston Globe was there, and Hunter gladly joined him in drinking and smoking dope to pass the time. By the time Ralph had got there, things were already out of control. On top of that, the hotel had lost Ralph's reservation, and he had to bunk with Hunter with no buffer from the madness. Poor, Ooh. poor Ralph. 
Now, Hunter stayed high most of the time and would amuse himself by going down to the hotel lobby and having the front desk page him by the name of Nazi war criminal Martin Borman. (laughs) Hunter had no interest in the fight. When Ralph came to the room to get Hunter on the night of the fight, he found him still in his bathrobe. Hunter then informed him that they weren't going to the fight because he had sold the tickets and he was going to the hotel pool to go swimming. These were $200 a pop press tickets, which now I I didn't do the the conversion. Well over $1,000, probably well over $2,000 per seat yeah, that he probably. sold these seats. Hunter then went down to the pool with a pound and a half of a bag of weed, emptied the bag into the pool, and then dove into the middle of it. Quote, this is it, Ralph. Fuck the fight. If you think I came all this way to watch a couple of beat the shit out of each other in a rainstorm, then you've got another thing coming. If he skipped the fight, he didn't need to write about it. He's stupid. And he's racist. But in a way, he's kind of smart because he's getting all these free trips to places based on his ability to lie about his abilities to write and he's getting away with it yeah oh well and it all goes back to when he was a kid and he got away with the one with destroying that mailbox and he that kind of set the tone for him well i can do anything get away with it doesn't matter if he did a little bit of jail time he can get away with it now while in africa hunter acquired a set of elephant tusks he persuaded ralph to fly to the States with him because Ralph didn't have the proper paperwork to enter the U.S., and when they landed, the commotion around Ralph was all Hunter needed to sneak the tusks through customs in a duffel bag. After 24 hours in the no-man's-land lounge, Ralph returned to England. It's just... Now, the last time... Let's change up a little bit. Last time anyone had heard from Oscar Acosta was June 1974. He disappeared on a smuggling boat off the coast of Mexico, and Hunter had learned about this in the fall when he was in Africa. There was never any hard evidence of foul play, but most assumed that he had been shot on that boat and left for dead in the ocean. Oscar had been living hand-to-mouth for a while and was asking for help from Hunter for money, but he was also the one constantly holding up any production on the Fear and Loathing movie project. Now, over the years, there were supposed sightings of Oscar in Mexico and India, but they were all just rumor. Hunter was sure his friend was dead. Well, after his return home from Africa, Hunter discovered that he had been turned into a cartoon character for a newspaper comic by Gary Trudeau called Doonesbury. Have you ever read Doonesbury? Yes, I've read Doonesbury. He introduced the world to Uncle Duke in December of 1974, a balding, aviator-shade-wearing Rolling Stone writer who hallucinated that he was seeing bats. Hunter was livid. (laughs) Now, Hunter and Jan still had an agreement for a book about the 76 campaign for Straight Arrow Books. Hunter needed that $75,000 advance. But when it never came, Hunter called Jan to find out why. Jan had sold Straight Arrow, and Hunter's advance was one of the casualties. Hunter was, again, livid. 
I'd be too. Fuck. He vowed never again to speak to Jan Warner. Then a little time later, Jan called Hunter asking him if he would like to go to Saigon to cover the end of the Vietnam War, and Hunter agreed. <laughs> <laughs> you dirty fucker, I'm never going to talk to you again. You want to go to Vietnam? Sure, why not? Free trip, hey. Yeah. Uh, so, Hunter started calling his reporter friends to find out just what the fuck he was supposed to do. He was nervous. This was war. He called Lauren Jenkins, a friend from Aspen and Newsweek correspondent in Vietnam. He asked what it was like there and if he was dangerous. Well, yeah, it's dangerous. It's a war. Lauren asked him to go to his Hong Kong office to pick up about $40,000 just in case they needed to buy their way out of the country and to be sure to tape the money to his body because he would be searched when he touched down. A sign at the airport said that all American money over $100 would need to be given up or they would be prosecuted. Quote, I was a pigeon. I thought we'd all be executed. <laughs> Apparently, uh, he got off the plane, saw the, um, the sign, like ran down the road, jumped onto the back of some kid's bike and told him to take off. And they just took off from the airport because he was terrified he was going to get arrested in Vietnam, oh which gosh. probably wouldn't have been great. Now, as you can guess, Hunter wasn't exactly built for Vietnam. No, he seems like a, a pussy. He talks he talks a big game. Well, but... and, and we just think of how he dresses. The the aviator sunglasses, the cigarette holder, the hat, the Hawaiian shirt, the Bermuda shorts. Not really He's uh, too casual. Yeah. While other reporters wore olive or green clothes to blend in, Hunter still wore his high tops and Hawaiian shirts. On his first venture out into Saigon, he brought along with him two hired Vietnamese boys to follow him carrying a cooler full of beer. After a jeep ride into the sticks, a couple reporters quickly got some interviews and then wanted to haul ass out. But Hunter had wandered off. They found him several hundred yards down the road, walking directly toward a Viet Cong encampment. They literally grabbed him, picked him up, and threw him into the Jeep. Because he was walking directly towards the Viet Cong. I, <laughs> not that liquid courage. It's like he took well, some Felix Felicis. That and, uh, you know, I imagine there was drug use going on. Well, of course. And not long after arriving in Saigon, Hunter called Rolling Stone because his telex card had been refused. He found out that Warner was on a ski vacation, and managing editor Paul Scanlon explained that in a fit of fury after receiving a letter from Hunter um, that he had wrote after he found out that he wasn't getting the advance, he wrote Werner a, a pretty scathing letter that Warner had take him, taken him off retainer. It was like being fired and meant losing staff benefits like health and life insurance. He's in Vietnam. Fortunately, the firing was never processed and Scanlon restored his expense account privileges. Hunter took it very personally. Quote, it was the end of our working relationship, except for special circumstances. You shouldn't work for someone who would fire you en route to a war zone. Probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I get that. 
Now, Hunter had left home so quickly for the war that he didn't pack many of the things he wanted to take with him. You remember a couple episodes ago we talked about how he walked out of the room when uh, Kennedy was shot, Robert Kennedy was shot, and he didn't see it happen on TV like everybody else did. I told you it wouldn't be the last time he missed out on something important just because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes. Now, many gadgets and recording equipment is uh, what he wanted. He he wanted, like, the high-end stuff. Uh, he wanted high-tech equipment that so he could bug the U.S. Embassy and shit like that because he, he wanted to know what was going on. So he flew to Hong Kong to see what gizmos he could find. And while he was gone, Saigon fell to the communists and the Americans evacuated by helicopter. He had missed, again, the one thing he had been sent there to record. <laughs> Like, all this war going on. I'm going to head to Hong Kong real quick. I'll be back in a few minutes. Comes back. Where'd everybody go? <laughs> the war just ended while he was gone. And at least he could have died. He could have died. Uh, but his the whole reason he was there was to record the end of the Vietnam War. And he didn't do it. Because he wasn't there. Well, because he went to go get the equipment he to went record. To, he, no, he went to go get special gadgets because he wanted to bug the U.S. Embassy. He didn't. It wasn't stuff that he needed. It was stuff that he wanted. With communication open again with Warner, Jan flew Sandy to Hong Kong to spend some time with Hunter, and she asked their neighbor Craig Vetter to house-sit and watch Juan and the animals at Owl Farm. Juan, a prodigy with electronics, had hooked up a system that played loud, frightening noises when the light switch were turned on. (laughs) One night, a wolf howl came screaming through the house, and then the power to the whole place went out. They restored the power. Hunter and Sandy's brief vacation extended into nearly three weeks and subsequently pissed off Vetter. After about two weeks, there was a putrid smell emanating from the basement. They found a freezer with rotting survivalist stashes of meat and unmarked items wrapped in foil. The freezer never kicked back on after the power outage. Vetter threw out all the spoiled contents of the freezer. When the couple returned and Vetter told them what had happened, Hunter lost his shit. Quote, My God, I had all the best drugs in the world there. A Smithsonian's collection. Mescaline, sunshine acid, the last of the black beauties. Fear and loathing in Saigon was a fraction of what Hunter had actually put together, and the entire article wouldn't be published until the 10-year anniversary of the fall. It was another story about getting the story. So kind of a payback, I guess. Now you leave leave me here for three weeks with your fucking kid, you lose all your drugs. There you go, yeah. Now he tried to work on the 76 campaign, but after the New Hampshire primary, he decided he just couldn't do it. He made one contribution for Rolling Stone. In 1974, Hunter covered and recorded Governor Jimmy Carter's Law Day speech. This speech blew Hunter away, and he knew that this was the type of man that we needed in the White House. So, in 75, when the next election was just around the corner, he took the chance to go interview the man at his home. Carter wasn't sure if he would run or not, and Hunter spent a few days in his home to interview him, talking about everything under the sun, some of which really made Carter uncomfortable. Unfortunately, the tapes of those recordings were lost, but Hunter produced from that a cover story called Jimmy Carter 
and the great leap of faith. And we all know Jimmy Carter was a staunch Christian, and many things made him uncomfortable when it came to you know sex and drugs. And he's got Hunter S. Thompson sleeping in his house. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the very definition of a Christian, though. To be honest, Jimmy Carter is the definition of a Christian. Yeah, if he's accepting a druggie and letting that druggie sleep in his house. Jimmy Carter is probably the best Christian there is because he's probably the only Christian that lived by, you know, the teachings of Christ. Even Except, though accepting of homosexuals, yeah, accepting and, of everybody and, yep. and and doing what you can for others. The guys in his 90s and he's still building houses for Habitat for Humanity. The day after he had a fucking... Was it a heart attack? I think it was a heart attack. Yeah, heart Yeah, attack. and he fell down and busted his face all open. And he's, he's out there with the hard hat on, big old welts and scrapes and everything all over his face, putting the up walls. The day after that, yes. He's a... One, one the best president, but he's a good man. Yes. Now, by 1977, Oscar Acosta had been on Hunter's mind a lot. There were rumors of sightings, but Hunter knew of the only good way to bring him out of the woodwork, if he was truly still alive, was to write about him. And so came The Banshee Screams for Buffalo Meat, a memoir of Hunter's friendship that was both fond and brutal, and despite the looking back tone, avoided all traces of sentimentality. A written version of The Dance of Male Bonding Hunter stacked layers of shit upon his friend in the article, calling him at turns, quote, a dope-addled clown, a fat spick, a dangerous thug, and a stupid, vicious whack with no morals at all, and the soul of a hammerhead shark. Oh, my gosh. But, I mean, I guess... <sighs> and that we were better off without him. Oh. He made it to where, if Oscar was alive there would be no way he wouldn't show up to either sue or kill Hunter. It was he, he did it purely as a plot to get his friend to come back out. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. But so he may not necessarily mean everything. Or he... Probably, I, I'm pretty sure he means most of it, but in his own Hunter way. Uh, but he never did. And the certainty of Oscar's death added to Hunter's mental funk. He never came. If this wasn't going to bring him out, nothing was going to, and it didn't bring him out of the woodwork. So that was pretty much all the proof Hunter need needed that his friend was dead. Now the story inspired producer Art Linson to buy the rights to the article in 1978. Universal Studios flew Hunter and Sandy to California and sweet talked them into signing the contract including a fee for serving as consultant on the film. The BBC also took interest in Hunter and devoted an episode of its omnibus series to Hunter, the writer, and Raoul Duke, the celebrity. While filming the BBC piece, they went to a Hollywood funeral home to get an estimate on Hunter's funeral costs, just to see, hey, how much would it cost to bury me? He wanted a huge monument build, built at Al Farm, a long shaft with a double-thumbed gonzo fist on top with his ashes shot through the tube like a cannon and blown over the countryside while a loudspeaker played Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. That's what his funeral, that's what he wanted his funeral to be. 
And he talks about it quite a bit through the book. You think he gets it? Probably. Yes. Stick around to find out. I mean, that's... It's quite... It's, it's very detailed. Yeah, it's wow. Quite... Now, all this time, the marriage between the two was getting worse and worse. Sandy had started going to therapy, which Hunter was adamantly against. But with all of Hunter's infidelities, Sandy had finally had enough. And in one of his uh, periodic absences, she began an affair with a man in a nearby town. I I never condone cheating, but I mean, I guess kind of good for her. No, I give him an ultimatum. Don't cheat. Fair Divorce enough. and then move on. Fair enough. Now, at the end of the summer in 1978, during a calm in one of Hunter's flights of rage, Sandy quietly said, quote, Hunter, I want a divorce. He went berserk, and she called the sheriff. Sandy and Juan moved into Aspen, and she got a job at a bookstore to support herself. Hunter had long believed that he had a spy in his inner circle because every time something happened in his marriage that no one else should know about, it somehow ended up being the subject of the next Doonesbury comic. After the split in one strip, Uncle Duke returned home to ask Zonkers, where's Sandy? And Zonkers replies, Sandy's gone and she's not coming back. Ooh. Yeah. Now, after the split, Hunter moved down to Key West for a while and stayed in a bachelor-era apartment of friend and neighbor Jimmy Buffett. He used it as an escape from fame, divorce, and writing. His time in Key West let him live out his being Hemingway fantasy, drinking, drugs, women, and fishing. He took a fascination with one of his duplex mates, Chris Robinson, who took a jigsaw and some scrap bicycle and lamp parts and constructed something about the size of a clothes dryer, attached an old metal tractor seat covered in heavy vinyl, and then affixed a latex appendage rising from the center, a dildo with setting for two, four, or six-inch strokes. It was like a sculpture. He called it functional art. You could sit on it and... Fuck yourself. Fuck yourself. Yes. Oh, wow. Anybody who's ever seen the movie A Bird After Reading with Brad Pitt and George Clooney, that's pretty much what George Clooney's building in his basement through that entire thing. It's pretty great. Now, while visiting the set of Saturday Night Live in 1977, Hunter met a young segment producer named Lila Nabulsi. Hunter had met John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd the year before, and they became good friends. They were drawn to one another almost immediately. They spent the bulk of that evening together. They spent two weeks together in his hotel room until he got a phone call. After he hung up and she asked who it was, he said, quote, my wife. And that ended that. Till about a year later, when one of her SNL friends invited her to a party, and lo and behold, just who happened to be there, but Hunter. They talked, and he told her about the divorce. They went back to Buffett's place in Key West. Hunter filed for divorce on February 9th, 1979. It was a messy divorce where they squabbled over, muddle, uh, squab, squabbled over money and the settling of Alf Farm. Can you imagine Hunter S. Thompson and John Belushi partying together? I know, that's just... I don't know if I have it in here, but near near the end, before John dies, you know, uh, when he's going and hanging out with Hunter because Hunter's in kind of a funk, 
They said that John Belushi was having a hard time keeping up with Hunter S. Thompson. The fact that John Belushi is having a hard time keeping up with anybody when it comes to alcohol and drugs is mind-boggling. But they said that he was having a hard time keeping up with Hunter. So weird. Yeah. Now, finally, Art Linson came through with a check for the film version of Hunter's eulogy to Oscar Acosta, now to became, uh, become a movie called Where the Buffalo Roam, plus a $25,000 consultant fee. At that point, Hunter couldn't care less about the actual movie. He just needed the money. Peter Boyle was cast as Acosta, infuriating the Chicano community, which wanted a Hispanic actor. So instead of changing actors, they changed Oscar to Laszlo, a Bulgarian. <laughs> what the fuck? As for Hunter's character, they got none other than the man himself, the BMFM Bill Mother fucking Murray. Damn right. Preparing for the role, Bill lived with Hunter and Layla for a while, and Bill was such an expert mimic that he absorbed Hunter's personality. And for almost a year after the film had ended, he still carried many of Hunter's mannerisms. But no matter who they got to act in the film, it came off as too buffoonish. The sensitivity Hunter had shown for his friend was lost. Um, even um, Gary Trudeau, who did the, did the Doonesbury comics, wrote to him and he was like, dude, what the fuck is this? Sh- you should be ashamed of yourself for putting, letting them put this thing out. And, he's, and uh, Hunter's like, you let me worry about me, fucker. Don't, you don't need to fucking worry about There's even, He hates Gary Trudeau. Like, I can't put it, like, it's almost as much as he hated Nixon. Because it made him look like a just a fucking idiot in Dudesbury. And even on um, Conan O'Brien's show, back when he did the really, really late show on NBC, uh, when he followed up Jay Leno, he actually let Hunter destroy a cutout of Gary Trudeau with a uh, machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, in, 18, in, 18, in 1980, the divorce negotiations neared its end, and Hunter was able to take his new love, Lila, home to Al Farm, out of Florida and back to Colorado, where Lila would take up the mantle as new Sandy, tiptoeing around the house until it was time to get him up, cooking his meals, having his drinks ready, that sort of thing. Paul Perry, editor of Running Magazine, presented Hunter with an opportunity to return to the world of magazine writing. He wanted him to cover the 1980 Honolulu Marathon. After much pleading, Hunter finally gave in and accepted the job, mostly because he wanted to treat Layla to Christmas in Hawaii on the magazine's dime. Hunter called Ralph Stedman and his family to join in. It was going to be a holiday in paradise. Yeah, I get the feeling that that's not going to happen. Well, the reality was that the majority of the time that they were there, it was raining and the waves were crashing all the way onto their cabin porches. And neither man cared much about running. Their plan was to start the race, hop in a cab, hang out at some friend's house, rejoin the race just at the end, sprinting to the finish line and winning by cheating. (laughs) Of course, of course. But they ended up just sitting on a flatbed and heckling the runners. Quote, you're doomed, man. You'll never make it. Hey, fat boy, how about a beer? Run, you silly bastard. They ended up piecing together an article named uh, Charge of the Weird Brigade, and it was published April of 81. 
It was his first piece of original journalism in three years, and he and Perry fought over the manuscript. The editors had removed several fucks from the story, and the staff objected to Hunter's use of the N-word. Perry allowed all the fucks to be reinstated, but tried to persuade Hunter to remove the racist language. Quote, Why the fuck would I do that? I'm a bigot. I'm what they call a multi-bigot. A unibigot is a racist. A multi-bigot is just a prick. Magazine readers were split on the piece. Some even threatened to cancel their subscriptions. (laughs) Wow. It's just so good. Uh, Now, they tried to make a book out of the trip. Even after two more trips to the island, Hunter just couldn't get the book started. He was too busy partying at Owl Farm to write. Uh, Like, oh, I do have it in here because, like I said, John Belushi came to visit, and even he couldn't keep up with Hunter. The Curse of Lono was languishing. Hunter always needed to have someone around to play off of. Ralph was in England. Acosta was gone. He kept Lila in the background. So he invented someone new. A former CIA agent working for Air America in the last days of the Vietnam War, Gene Skinner. This would be the new Hunter alter ego. Not as nice as Duke and with a different attitude, Hunter started lifting selections from Mark Twain and Captain Cook's journals that were in the public domain. The book was published in November of 1983. It wasn't a huge success. Hunter began to hate the fact that Ralph's pictures was just as much part of Gonzo as his writings. He just couldn't write in that style without them. They even have an argument about um, Hunter says that, you know, it's all him. And Ralph's like, without my drawings, you got nothing. And I mean, they go back and forth for a while. They're friends till the end, but they go back and forth for a while. Now, eventually, Hunter took Layla down to Louisville to meet his mother, and he batted around the idea of getting married. Eventually, though, Lila decided it was easier easier to love Hunter than to live with him. And after more than three years together, Layla left for L.A. Now, they remained friends, and she would even be a producer on the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas film. Without her, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the film, doesn't happen. So she plays a very big part. It's one of the reasons I have her in here. But some people you're just better off not being with. You just don't, especially if the person's hard to live with. Like you're hard to live with. I'm not that hard to live with. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but so uh, his alter ego, Duke. Raul Duke. Raul Duke was the nice one. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to Gene Skinner. Yeah, he was the nicer of the one. Yeah. Okay. 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 Now, now he covered the very public divorce trial of newspaper heir Herbert Pulitzer and his wife Roxanne. It erased the line between traditional journalism and sleazy tabloid writing. The sex and drug angle was irresistible. He actually became good friends with Roxanne about eight years after the trial when he showed genuine remorse for the things he wrote that had her children taken away. Yeah. Now, in the mid-80s, Hunter turned back to the campus speeches. He earned roughly $200,000 a year from his every-other-week college talks. He could finally afford to not write. But in 1985, Hunter took a job writing a weekly column for the Examiner and acclaimed publisher William Randolph Hearst III. 
Anne Hurst made an employee by the name of David McCumber into his babysitter to make sure his articles came in on time. Hunter began dating University of Arizona student Maria Kahn. She was a huge help for Hunter's columns. She would write all of Hunter's conversations in a notebook, and Hunter referred to her so much in the columns that skeptics on the examiner's staff wondered whether she actually wrote them. It was one of those things where assistants usually became girlfriends. Or girlfriends became assistants. It was one or the other. Yeah. It, that's usually how it worked. And he, he probably cited her so much in his articles. I don't know if he cited her at all. He just he just put her name in there that she said something. But I don't know if she actually, he actually went through the trouble of citing her. Well, if he's saying that she said something, that's citing her. Okay. Now, he had spent so much time out of the political journalism that he decided maybe it was time to get back in. And the Reagan-Bush regime was the perfect time. Reagan seemed to Hunter a genial dunce and not worthy of his most extreme anger, but some acts committed by his administration were sufficient enough to awaken Hunter's ire. And it was him, not Duke or Skinner. And he was able to release his anger in the Examiner, not just report like he had in Rolling Stone. Jim Silberman, Silberman, who he still owed a book to, took all of his columns from the Examiner and published them in a book called generation of swine it didn't quite satisfy his obligation to silverman but it did become a bestseller and was seen as a comeback Hmm. in 1988 maria left hunter no hard feelings just time to move on and during the divorce hunter had met deborah fuller an artist friend of sandy's whom she lived with for a while after layla left and before maria came around hunter asked deborah to help him He loved having Deborah around, and they had a brief relationship. But when it ended, she stuck around and worked with Hunter, often without getting paid. She ran his day-to-day life for 23 years. Damn. Yeah. She moved into the smaller cabin at Al Farm, where his friend Billy Noonan had lived. She lived there rent-free, but was on call 24-7. So you can imagine being on call for Hunter S. Thompson. Every second of every day. Yeah, because he'd take full advantage of that. (laughs) Yeah. In 1989, Hunter brought on his new girlfriend's sister, Catherine, as his new assistant. Then, in 1990, he stopped writing for the Examiner, tired of the weekly deadline. McCumber helped Hunter go through the archives, finding clean copies of Hunter's early stories and putting them together in chronological order. They quickly began assembling the book that became... Songs of the Doomed. Once he seized on the approach to the book and learned that it would satisfy Jim Silberman, Hunter couldn't stop working. Catherine was in charge of helping Hunter create new material for the book, most of which would tie together the excerpts from long-lost works, including The Rum Diary. Hunter pushed himself and those around him. Weeks would go by on this reverse sleep schedule where he would stay up for a day and sleep for a full day and stay up for two or three more, expecting everyone around him to do the same, all of its substance supported. Unfortunately, just as Hunter was making great progress on the book, he suffered a setback for 99 days. Let me tell you about Gail Palmer. Gail Palmer became famous as an actress and director in porno films. She married a wealthy physician in Michigan and settled down. She wanted to become a writer, but she didn't know any writers. So, 
When her husband scheduled a ski trip to Aspen, she saw her chance to meet the writer she most admired. She began peppering Hunter with letters and announced she would visit. Deborah penciled the promised date on Hunter's kitchen calendar. Hunter said her visit was an impending annoyance. Hunter's friend, I had Sammy's Luckett, S-E-M-M-E-S, Sammy's Luckett, who was pretty much just a male Deborah, was there that day and was always complaining about the women in Aspen. So when Palmer called to arrange the meeting, he had Sammy's take the call, and since she wanted to interview Hunter, he got her to come alone by taxi and leave her husband behind. See what he's trying to do? Yes. Fuck, man. Hunter was immediately repulsed by her loud and abrasive manner. She had to be the center of attention, and all Hunter cared about that evening was the Georgetown game. But now there was an irritant in the room, and she refused to shut up. She continued to babble and ask Hunter about his sex life. Quote, all right, here's a story I just wrote. And he handed her the manuscript for Screwjack, a story from deep in the groin filled with carnivorous lust. After a few pages, she put it down and told Hunter he was a pervert. I don't know if you've ever I don't know if you've ever heard of Screwjack or read excerpts from Screwjack, but it's fucking disgusting. I read a couple excerpts. It's bad. No, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Uh, he forced her to keep reading, but the brutality of the story wounded her and had its intended effect. She shut up. They kept drinking, though, through the night, and she eventually turned into the one thing Hunter hated most, the sloppy drunk. Hunter would drink a lot, but he could hold it, and very few people ever said that they saw him drunk. High, sure, but not drunk. Eventually, everyone left, and it was just Palmer and Hunter. Hunter's begging everybody, take her with you. Take her, even look it. He's like, dude, take her with you. And he's like, no, she's all yours, man. Fuck that. Hunter tried to call her a cab from the kitchen phone, but she pulled it from his hand. He tried again and actually reached the cab company, but she grabbed the phone again before Hunter could give the address. And then a third time, finally, she came at him in the kitchen and he shoved her back screaming, quote, get the fuck away. Palmer was furious and came at him again and again, and he shoved her, hitting her on the shoulders with his palms, sending her to the floor so that she uh, hit her hip on the counter on her way down. She went to the porch and waited for the cab. Fifteen minutes later... She was gone. Later that week, a neighbor appeared at his house. Quote, They're going to come search your house. They're going to come get you with a search warrant. Hunter and his confidence started cleaning out the house of drugs and weapons, but they couldn't get everything. Palmer's husband was furious when his wife returned from Hunter's talking about the abuse and drug use, and she had claimed Hunter had roughly twisted her left breast and tried to force her into a hot tub. Hunter's old friend, Bob Broadus, you remember Bob? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had been elected sheriff a while back and had been criticized for his friendship with Hunter and letting him get away with so many things that no one else would. So there's a feud that Hunter had with his neighbor. Uh, they hated each other because Hunter would always be like out back shooting his guns and his neighbor couldn't stand it. He kept calling the sheriff's department, but Bob wouldn't do anything really about it because Hunter was one of his best friends. And uh, even Hunter even went as far as to 
poison a lake that uh, this neighbor had in his backyard, or pond or whatever you want to call it. Uh, he poisoned it, killing off $40,000 worth of fish that he had had trucked in. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So there's some there's some pressure on Bob to, hey, maybe you need to take this whole sheriff thing a little bit more seriously when it comes to Hunter S. Thompson. So Bob turned the case over to the district attorney's office to avoid any further conflict of interest claims. February 26th, five days after Gail Palmer's visit, six investigators conducted an 11-hour search of Hunter's home, finding small quantities of substances suspected of being cocaine and weed. There were no charges filed for the drugs, but he was charged with sexual assault. He posted $2,500 bail and went home. And for 99 days, he didn't know if he would face jail time. If convicted of all charges, he could be sentenced to 16 years in prison. Palmer and her husband urged the DA to drop the charges. The DA declined. Hunter decided to take the fight to them, claiming that it was a political trial and that he was looking forward to getting to court. Even as the DA's cases against him started to crumble, Hunter grew more combative. Quote, this is a Fourth Amendment case. It's not about sex or drugs or violence. It's about police power. The more the DA tried to skulk away, the more apocalyptic Hunter became. There's, you just see the DA be like, all right, all right, all right. Well, we're, we're done. No, no, no. No, you're not. I'm not. No, you're not done. We've all done it at some point. Now, friends bought a full-page newspaper ad that said, Today, the doctor. Tomorrow, you. (laughs) (laughs) And sex workers and strippers were bussed in from San Francisco to trounce around the courthouse in bikinis with signs of said support. The case of the people of the state of Colorado versus Hunter S. Thompson was dismissed on May 30th, 1990. The court case gave Songs of Doom its ending. He dedicated that book to David McCumber and Catherine. Kat's internship was finished. He begged her to stay, but she couldn't handle the work any longer. But Hunter being Hunter, while Kat was decompressing from her long internship in the Bahamas with her boyfriend, her phone rang. Someone was trying to reach Hunter. He had forwarded his calls, and she was answering the phone for him in the Bahamas. Oh, what a dick. (laughs) Oh, God. He's so good. Oh, he's so good. Let her enjoy her vacation. <laughs> Goddamn he asshole. He doesn't, he doesn't care. Now, early 1992, Hunter published Fear and Loathing in Elko in Rolling Stone, but the story had nothing to do with the political conference. Instead, it was a long fantasy in which Hunter recalled wild nights in Endicott's motel with the controversial Supreme Court nominee, Clarence Thomas. It was Hunter's longest work for Rolling Stone in years and one of his most sustained attempts at fiction. Because of the wide age gap, Hunter and Jim never really became close. Hunter was more like the cool uncle than a brother. While both Hunter and Davidson moved away, Jim stayed at home and cared for their alcoholic mother. Because of this, he was in and out of the University of Kentucky. Eventually, Hunter and Davidson paid for Virginia to be moved into an Episcopal church home just outside of Louisville. So Jim moved to California, where he could be open about his sexuality. 
that on March 25th, 1993, Hunter's youngest brother, Jim, died of complications from AIDS. Hunter spent years criticizing both the Reagan and Bush administrations for the complete denial of the AIDS crisis, and now it has taken his brother. So he's probably going to go harder at it. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them. My beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes, and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! Later that year, a very young history professor named Douglas Brinkley came down to Woody Creek with his class of 27 college students to meet Hunter as a part of a traveling class called an American Odyssey. Hunter met with the class in the typical Hunter fashion, insulting the students, autographing the books they had bought by shooting them with a 45, that sort of thing. <laughs> Thanks for buying my book. You want me to autograph it? Yeah, send it next to that tree. And then he'd shoot a hole through it. That was your autograph. Before they left that evening, Hunter pulled Brinkley aside and asked him if he would want to help with his next book, the book he was writing on the 92 campaign. The visit would spark a relationship that would be the resuscitation of Hunter's literary career. But first, the campaign book, Better Than Sex. Is there anything? Uh, apparently watching Trump lose twice. In Georgia? <laughs> if, if you believe my wife's Facebook posts, which I was, was... I was not sure how I should react to, but okay. You, you put a <laughs> clapping person gift. No, my gif was uh, Captain Mao from Firefly, not sure how to answer a question. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Now, unfortunately, Brinkley coming in halfway through the book to help didn't do much to redeem it. It was his most inconsistent book, filled with faxes and photocopies. It read like an unedited diary. It sold to his fans well, but even Hunter's friends said it looked like maybe he had lost his touch, and his detractors said that it looked like now he couldn't write anything longer than a column in a magazine. The book was being finished in 94 when Nixon died. So that was used to round off the book. If Hunter could write about anything well, it was Nixon. There's even a story that when Nixer died, Hunter was in New Orleans and at one point stuck his head in a tavern and shouted, quote, Nixon died. Anyone want acid? Oh, my God. 
The piece on Nixon goes like this. Quote, Richard Nixon is gone now, and I am poorer for it. He was the real thing, the political monster straight out of Grendel and a very dangerous enemy. He could shake your hand and stab you in the back at the same time. He lied to his friends, betrayed the trust of his family. If the right people had been in charge of Nixon's funeral, his casket would have been launched into one of those open sewage canals that empties into the ocean just south of Los Angeles. He was a swine of a man and a jabbering dupe of a president. Nixon was so crooked that he needed servants to help screw on his pants every morning. He has poisoned our waters forever. Nixon will be remembered as a classic case of a smart man shitting in his own nest. But he also shit in our nests. And that was the crime that history will burn on his memory like a brand. By disgracing and degrading the presidency of the United States, by fleeing the White House like a diseased cur, Richard Nixon broke the heart of the American dream. I Thompson's got some Pretty issues. nasty. Yeah. yeah. Now, Hunter continued to submit articles to Rolling Stone here and there, but he was fall, but he was falling more and more into substance abuse. Once the cocaine started, it really took hold. His fans didn't care about any of that. They wanted their rebel author in any state he was in. But as Hunter grew older, he was uncomfortable being looked at as some kind of idol, even for the counterculture. He thought his writing was first rate, and he felt like it wasn't getting the respect it deserved from those who were not his diehard fans. In June of 1995, Hunter was on the panel to discuss Jack Kerouac. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. On the same panel was poet and professor at the University of Louisville, Ron Whitehead. Now, I mentioned Jack Kerouac. Hunter is actually pretty good friends with Allen Ginsberg through a lot of this, but I don't bring him into it because he doesn't really add anything to the story. But him and Allen are good friends. It never says if he actually meets Burroughs or not. Now, after the panel, they stood and talked. Some fans came up and gave Hunter some joints and some pills. Whitehead said he saw Hunter pocket the joints and throw the pills into his mouth. Hunter asked Whitehead to check in on his mother from time to time, which Whitehead did, saying that it was like visiting with Hunter because Virginia was a 10th degree smartass. <laughs> Hunter also invited him and his wife to visit the farm whenever they liked. When they showed up, he greeted them with blaring a recording over the countryside that Whitehead called a, quote, bear killing and eating what sounded like a baby. Oh. <laughs> Jack Nicholson interrupted the visit three separate times with phone calls apparently furious that Hunter had broken a window at his home and tossed in firecrackers, scaring the <laughs> scaring the high holy hell out of his visiting daughters. <laughs> Whitehead knew that many people out west loved and appreciated Hunter, but it wasn't the same in Kentucky, and Whitehead, Whitehead vowed to change that. There were Quite a few stories in Gonzo about Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston and Margot Kidder and a bunch of I mean, Bill Murray, and Johnny Depp, a bunch of them. Uh, I I really urge you to go get or read that book because it is you'll get more information probably from outlaw journalists, but Gonzo is so much more fun to read. It really is. Now, to a man that you. Stephanie, have been rallying for for quite some time over some things that have been happening lately. A man I just mentioned, Johnny Depp, was in Aspen in December of 95 
trying to avoid the Hollywood holiday crowds when a friend asked him if he would like to meet Hunter at Woody Creek Tavern. Johnny, of course, said yes. About 11 that night, Hunter arrived to the bar with a cattle prod that he set on the table and had drinks with them. Turns out they had some stuff in common. They were both Kentucky boys, and they were both juvenile delinquents. Hunter invited him back to Al Farm, where they bonded further while setting off a bomb. <laughs> Several months later, about 5.30 in the morning, while Depp was on the set of Donnie Brasco, Hunter called and asked, quote, Listen, if they were going to do a film of the Vegas book, would you be interested? Would you want to play me? Are you in? Of course, Johnny again said yes. Layla Nabulsi controlled the rights to the film and, to show how well the book could be dramatized, produced an oral performance of the book for release by Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville Records. Layla even managed to get Jan Warner to play himself and Jimmy Buffett to portray a cop in the desert. The recording was not released until late 1996, when Vegas celebrated its 21st anniversary. By then, Depp was deep into what he called his soul-stealing in preparation to play Hunter S. Thompson on the big screen. Now, on December 12, 1996, Hunter returned to Louisville for Hunter S. Thompson Day, organized by Ron Whitehead. Bombradis came along for the three-day visit and drove him around town to see his mother and some old friends. Depp, Warren Zevon, came to play tribute, as did David Amaram, a conductor and a friend from the Cuddlebackville cabin days. They chatted during the rehearsal for the big event, Hunter taking periodic breaks to spray everyone with a fire extinguisher. With his mother in the front row in a wheelchair, the Memorial Auditorium in Louisville, they paid tribute to Hunter S. Thompson. The mayor proclaimed it Hunter S. Thompson Day, and the governor declared Hunter, Depp, Whitehead, Brinkley, Zevon, and Amaram to be Kentucky colonels. Nice. So I didn't know, but you can technically go up to Johnny Depp and call him Colonel Depp. I guess as long as you're in Kentucky. I don't know. Hunter got the key to the city. The last presenter before Hunter took to the stage was Juan Thompson. Quote, what was it like to have Hunter Thompson as your father? What can I say? What I can tell you is what I learned from my father and what I respect and admire in him. I've learned that the surface truth is rarely the real truth, and as a result, I've become cynical about the motivations of corporations, politicians, and law enforcement. Above all, it makes me think and pay attention. He demands in everything that he does that you set aside your habits and perceptions and pay attention to what is happening right now and deal with it. That's where the fun and excitement are, in not knowing what's going to happen. So what am I saying? I'm proud of this man. I respect and admire his vitality, his courage, his insight, his perverse resistance to security and predictability, his deliberate disregard for propriety, his ability to make me see and think differently. Ultimately, I love and respect him because he really lives. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, he lives his life. As Juan smiled and turned to look over his shoulder, out of the backstage darkness, his father approached, spraying him with the CO2 from a fire extinguisher. <laughs> Juan took the full blast with open arms and hugged Hunter. Aw, that's really sweet. I know. 
Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was turning 25, and it was being celebrated with a compendium of sorts called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Other American Stories, which included strange rumblings in Atslan, and the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved in this modern library hardcover. This gave Jan Warner another reason to celebrate Hunter. He invited Hunter to the New York office of Rolling Stone, where he proceeded to say hello to Jan with a fire extinguisher blast. He was swarmed by celebrities and paparazzi and spent the night with his tie around his head, poking people with his walking cane and hollering like a peacock. Smoking, drinking, and living up to the good doctor reputation, P.J. O'Rourke, American journalist, gave a toast, quote, We're here tonight to do something we've never done, and that is to take Hunter seriously, which he richly deserves, despite his behavior and his mode of dress and his headwear this evening. Hunter actually is a serious artist, very possibly the best one that's alive right now in his field, which doesn't really speak very well of the rest of us. But nonetheless, it is a distinction of utmost importance, and tonight we are here to celebrate that. Here is to Hunter, as the artist, the genius, as the man of his time, as someone who PhDs will be written about, as soon as all of us who actually knew him are dead. <laughs> So it was kind of like his roast. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which I think would be just great. Now, Hunter did the roast. Yeah. Now, Hunter enjoyed himself, but didn't want to be known as someone whose best work was a quarter of a century ago. Uh, none of us want that. None of us want to be known as that person who used to be good at something. Now, while at Al Farm, Douglas Brinkley went through a crate of Hunter's past correspondence, carbon copies of letters he saved since high school. They were going to put together a collection Hunter wanted to call The Education of a Journalist. Brinkley found almost 20,000 letters in boxes at Al Farm. Hunter had kept everything he wrote by carbon paper. Messy fucking stuff. You ever yeah. use carbon paper? Porter Bibb said, quote, Even as a child, Hunter always knew he would become famous. For about every one letter they kept, they threw aside five. Hunter met with Random House editor David Rosenthal, who offered a contract for the book in 1995. The dust jacket had a 40-year-old picture of Hunter hitchhiking. Hunter said, quote, I should be dead. Rosenthal said, quote, we'd sell a lot more copies. Oh, I mean, it's true. It's true because most people, they don't really sell their best work until they die. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess memoirs do sell better after somebody's dead, but look at Barack Obama's memoirs just made uh, Penguin Random House uh, history with how many copies it sold in its first day. Yeah, and it's probably going to sell a lot more once he's dead. Maybe. I think by the time he's dead, most everybody who wants it's going to have it. Yeah, <laughs> Pretty much everybody bought it already. Now, the book was eventually published in 1997 under the name The Proud Highway to phenomenal reviews. It was announced to be the first in a series of three books that would come from Hunter's letters. This would be the close, closest Hunter ever came to writing an autobiography. Now, in the midst of all this, Leyland and Bulsey was able to do the seemingly impossible. Get a movie for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas into production. Johnny Depp as Duke and Benicio Del Toro as Dr. Gonzo. Hunter was not a fan of the first script. They wanted to animate parts of the story that Hunter felt were to be taken seriously. 
Hunter and the director and screenwriter Alex Cox and co-writer Todd Davies got in a huge fight at Hunter's home. They stormed from the house, Hunter screaming at Davies, quote, write your own fucking movie. Write your own story. You're a smart girl. Go ahead and do it. Just don't fuck with mine and make it into a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after a couple months, Layla, and here we, we had talked before about how all of our authors usually have some type of connection with another one, got Monty Python's Terry Gilliam to direct. So there's your connection with uh, Douglas Adams. Nice. Yeah. He and Tony Grissoni. Tony Grissoni. Jesus Christ. Why would you do that to your kid? I guess it's supposed to be Anthony Grissoni, but still Tony Grissoni. Very Italian. Uh, they wrote the new screenplay that Hunter approved. Depp rearranged his movie schedule and finally began filming. While waiting for production to begin, Depp moved into Hunter's basement. He was bitten by a brown recruit while sleeping. And also one night while laying in bed smoking, reading through Fear and Loathing, he set his cigarette in the ashtray on the nightstand. Then he looked more carefully and realized it wasn't a nightstand. He ran up, got Hunter to come down and look, quote, Oh God, that's where it is? I've always wondered what happened to it. It was a keg of gunpowder. Oh shit! <laughs> I knew I left that somewhere. Fuck. You just have gunpowder laying around your house and you like don't know where it is. Nonchalantly like, oh, that's where I left it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You might get your cigarette right away from there. Take it outside if you want to blow it up. I don't care. Now, when filming started, Hunter stayed away to not cause a distraction. The only day he was on set was when he was filming his cameo in the picture. Now, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, watch closely in the scene in the Matrix nightclub. He plays an older version of himself as Depp is playing the younger version of Hunter. Does a double take when he finds him there. Uh, I've got some uh, lady there dancing with him and everything. He's just sitting there at a table. It, it's, it's a pretty good cameo. He's just sitting there. Hunter's kitchen quickly became a mecca for pilgrimages for young hip writers, editors, actors, and musicians. You never knew who you'd meet there. Jimmy Carter, George McGovern, Johnny Depp, John Cusack, Ed Bradley, Jimmy Buffett, or Indianapolis Colts owner, Jim Ursay. Nice. Yeah. Now, in 1997, Nicole Brown came to work with him to assemble Polo Is My Life. That was the story that she was writing about the divorce that we talked about just a little bit ago. She dug right in and got straight to work and turned Hunter down at every one of his advances. Uh, assistants usually became girlfriends, as we'd say, or at least drug buddies. But when Hunter offered her drugs, she said no, and he never asked again. Once while driving around, he pulled the car to the side of the road and asked if he could kiss her. She again said no. Hunter looked around and then it heard, quote, well, fuck it then, and took her home and never spoke of it again. When she finished her time with him, he wrote her a glowing reference for graduate school. There were rumors about Hunter holding a gun to Brown's head. The Courier-Journal called Brown for a response, to which she said that he was a difficult man to work for, but was always the perfect gentleman, and that he had never held a gun to her head or mistreat her in any way. After the story appeared, Brown answered the phone in the middle of the night, quote, What the hell are you trying to do? You'll ruin my reputation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So David Rosenthal moved from Random House to Simon & Schuster as publisher. Hunter went with him. With all this reminiscing to the past, Hunter thought maybe it was time to resurrect an old forgotten tomb, The Rum Diary. Problem was, Jim Silverman was still planning on publishing it with Random House's Pantheon division. Hunter wanted to rewrite it, but Silverman wanted to go as is. So, Hunter had the manuscript stolen. <laughs> of course he did. He cut 600 pages from the 1,000-page novel, and it was published with Simon & Schuster in 1998 to rave reviews. I know we're, we're jumping around a lot, and I'm skipping over a lot of years, but a lot of that time is just them working on things. One interesting stories pop up, that's what I'm throwing in. But where he's really just kind of jumping from year to year now. That year, though, Fear and Loathing was released to theaters on one of the first big weekends of the summer season. It was maybe an unfortunate time to be released, because also released that year was, and it's a long list, so settle in, Deep Impact. Okay. Almost Heroes. Okay. Chris Farley and uh, Matthew Perry. Trying okay. to go again. Bullworth, The Horse Whisperer, Hope Floats, The Big Lebowski, ah, yeah. Man in the Iron Mask, Wild Things, City of Angels, Odd Couple 2, one of my favorites, Major League Back to the Miners, Suicide Kings, Godzilla, The Truman Show, Can't Hardly Wait, Six Days, Seven Nights, Mulan, Dr. Doolittle, Armageddon, Lethal Weapon 4, Madeline, There's Something About Mary, Disturbing Behavior, Saving Private Ryan, Basketball, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, Blade, Rush Hour, Urban Legend, Ants, Night at the Roxbury, American History X, The Water Boy, A Bug's Life, The Rugrats Movie, Shakespeare in Love, You've Got Mail, Patch Adams, and one of Stephanie's favorite movies, even though it was only a TV movie, Halloween Town. Ah, oh, yeah, they, that's they a had big no, year. That is a no big chance. now. Granted, not all of these movies came out at the same weekend as Fear is Loathing, or even in the summer. Uh, but with so many big movies coming out, if you only had the money to go see a movie a couple times a year, you could see. You go see. You know, most families would probably go together they probably aren't going to go see Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's like, yeah, well, we, we can not. see one movie this year, kids. What do you want to see? Mulan, Dr. Doolittle, Ants, Bugs Life, Rugrats movie. Yeah. I mean, That's you're kind of... That's not really st- a family movie. I want to go see kind of a stoner movie. Big Lebowski. Uh, fuck. Honestly, out of all of them, I'd go see The Odd Couple, too. Love the odd couple. Fucking yeah, great. a date movie in the nineties. Yeah, that's not no, you no. don't no, not really. At the premiere, Hunter stood with Depp and Del Toro for the paparazzi and hit them with bags of popcorn. <laughs> of course he did. Depp actually apologized a lot to uh to Hunter about the movie, but Hunter fucking loved it. So uh audience and critics, however, not so much. It became a cult classic more than a mainstream breakout. Most of Terry Gilliam's movies are cult classics. Uh, financially, it was a bust. Currently, it has a 49 on the Rotten Tomatoes for critics, but an 89 for audiences. The cult following really has brought it up. Yeah. 
Now, Hunter had met Anita Bejmuk, B-E-J-M-U-K. Bejmuk? Bejmuk? Sure. In 1997, she was on an extended break from UCLA and decided to go skiing and ended up meeting Hunter through a friend. They knew each other for a long while, but eventually she decided to start working with Hunter and Brinkley on sorting through the rest of Hunter's letters. After a few months, her sabbatical from college was near its end and she was getting ready to head back to college. Hunter asked her to stay, and after working one-on-one with him for just a few hours, she had fallen in love. And they moved in together in 1999. Sad, because... Why is it sad? They're not going to get to spend much time together. I know when he dies. <laughs> Soon, the second book of letters called Fear and Loathing in America was being published. It was uh, 1968 through 1976, covering civil rights, Vietnam, Watergate, Hell's Angels, Fear and Loathing, and the 72 presidential campaign. It told about him tearing into an underling from American Express after they cut him off from his credit. Quote, After three extensive efforts to reach you, I got tired of talking to people who could barely speak English, much less understand what I was saying. How would you feel if you kept calling my house for prolonged conversation with my seven-year-old son? He deals with any calls I don't feel like taking. And how he showed concern for his friend and CBS correspondent, Hughes Rudd, after being stood up for drinks because Hughes had a heart attack. Quote, Dear Hughes, Fuck off with your excuse about why you didn't show up to meet me at Miller's Pub on Thursday night. So you had a fucking heart attack. So what? You some kind of pansy? Hell, you should have just had the ambulance take you from the amphitheater to the pub, not the hospital. Next time I plan to meet you anywhere for drinks, I'll know what to expect. What an asshole. Oh my gosh. What the fuck? Also was correspondence between him and Tom Wolfe, whom he called a thieving pile of albino warts. But after a letter Wolf wrote from Italy, lecturing Hunter on new journalism in 1971, Hunter responded with, quote, Dear Tom, you worthless scum-sucking bastard. Here you are running around fucking Italy in that filthy white suit at a thousand bucks a day, lying all you kinds of stone gibberish and honky bullshit on those poor wops who can't tell the difference, while I'm out here in the middle of these goddamn frozen mountains in a death battle with the tax man and nursing cheap wine while my dogs go hungry and my cars explode and a legion of Nazi lawyers make my life a goddamn wobbly nightmare. You decadent pig. Where the fuck do you get the nerve to go around telling those wops that I'm crazy? You worthless cocksucker. My Italian tour is already Already arranged for next spring, and I'm going to go do the whole goddamn trip wearing a bright red field marshal uniform and accompanied by six speed freak bodyguards bristling with mace bombs. And when I start talking about American riders and the name Tom Wolf comes up, by God, you're going to wish you were born a fucking iguana. The hammer of justice looms, and your filthy white suit will become a flaming shroud. (laughs) (laughs) You read that to me already. I know. And, and I asked you, I asked you, I was like, should I put it in? And you're like, fuck yeah, put it in. Yeah, because yeah. it's just great. Just <laughs> him ranting. Yeah. And he could do it better than damn near anybody if you get him, give him a minute. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, in 2000, he was offered a chance to supply ESPN with a weekly column for their webpage, and he jumped at the chance to return to his roots about writing about sports. That's what he started off doing back when he was a little kid in Louisville. 
The deadlines kept him busy, but the 2000 presidential election and the terrorist attacks of 2001 skewed his approach to the column. He often filled his acre of cyberspace with anti-Bush political rants. One Democratic presidential nominee, John Kerry, came to Aspen. He gave Hunter a private interview on the way to a fundraiser. And when Kerry took the podium, he asked the crowd, quote, How does this sound? Vice President Hunter S. Thompson. The crowd cheered, and Hunter was elated. Didn't happen, but still. Yeah. Would have been yeah. pretty good. Now, in the early 2000s, Deborah had finally finished her work with Hunter and left. More burdens fell on Anita now. She had to take care of the man and the writer now, not, not, just, not just the man himself, but she also had to, to do all the stuff that Deborah was doing as far as his writing went. And that's a lot of shit. Hunter was becoming depressed. He felt like he never really lived up to his potential, and the time was running out. Now, I don't go into a bunch about Deborah, but there are a lot of stories. Um, at one time, they get into an argument about something, and he runs up with an axe and cuts her power lines in half with an axe uh, right before she quit working. And she swears that this isn't why she quit working, but he actually shot her. <gasps> what the fuck? So there was apparently a bear on the property. And Hunter came out with his shotgun, but not a shot, with a one of his guns, and uh, was by her cabin because it was by her cabin. And pointed the shoot and started screaming at Deborah. And right when he shot, she opened up the door and came out, and he got her in the arm. Now she swears that's not one of the reasons she left, but there's a lot of other people go. It's probably a good reason why she left. She I got mean, shot. It it could be added to the list. Maybe one of the yeah. The, put it at the bottom of the list and say that's not one of the main reasons. Yeah. Now at this time, his body was starting to quit on him. Uh, he ate more healthily, worked out, mostly swimming like he always had, but his back was constantly hurting. He couldn't sit at a typewriter for hours on end anymore. His mind was still sharp, though, and he called himself, quote, a teenage girl trapped in the body of an elderly dope fiend. Now, on April 24th, 2003, Hunter married Anita at Pinkton County Courthouse with Bob Broadus and his wife as witness, so... It didn't just end. They, you know, they actually got me. He he really loved. He loved Anita. Uh, some would say more than he loved Sandy. Like it was a it was a real genuine love that he had for her. And it it's good possibility that it's because it came at a, a different time in his life. I don't think he really had room in his life to really truly love anybody other than himself when he was younger. That and he was too old to go cheating on him. Oh no, no he wasn't. Fuck no he wasn't. Anita was uh, Anita was just out of college. When he married her, he could he could still get women plenty, but I think he was I think he was he was good with where he was at with her. Honestly, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, Hunter reported on his wedding for ESPN readers, quote, it was done with a fine style and secrecy in order to avoid the craziness and drunken violence that local lawmen feared would inevitably have followed the ceremony. Our honeymoon was even simpler. We drank heavily for a few hours with Chris Goldstein and accepted fine gifts from strangers. Then we drove erratically back to Al Farm and prepared for our own very private celebration by building a huge fire, icing down a magnum of crystal champagne, and turning on the Lakers Timberwolves games until we both passed out and crawled into the bedroom. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Isn't it? 
Probably because he couldn't get it up anymore. Uh, no, I'm sure he could still get it up. He's not well, that old. If he's if he's having back problems where he can't sit at a typewriter, typewriter, Type, yeah, then I have back problems. I can't sit at the computer for very long, and I'm good. God damn it! <laughs> but he was much older than you. That's true. Now there had always been the joke of how Hunter should have died years ago. He was a modern medical miracle that the drugs didn't do him in long ago. Uh, he himself even said that he shouldn't live past 27. But now, the joke wasn't funny. His body was quickly getting worse. His friends were dying around him. Uh, it, it took a bigger toll on his psyche more than his own failing health. Uh, he, his, his friends all dying really depressed him. Because it's, it's not all like the start. Like, Warren Zevon died, which really depressed him, but... Like, one of the local bar owners that he was friends with died. And that put him into, like, a weeks-long depression that he just had a hard time coming out of. Just all these people around him were getting old and dying. It's part of life, but still, it sucks. He had a, a hip replacement, and then his spine started impinging on his nerves. Uh, he needed carts at airports. Travel became a burden. While visiting Hawaii, he set up a microwave in the hotel bathroom. He made ramen soup. Why you would make it into the bathroom, I don't know. Uh, while he was, <laughs> he made ramen soup, but it was so hot when he pulled it from the microwave, they spilled it on the marble floor. He slipped and he broke his leg. <sighs> Broadus said he had a cast from his balls to his toes. Oh. Yeah. Sean Penn chartered a plane to get Hunter back to a clinic in Colorado. He was depending on people more and more to get him mobile. Ralph Stedman said, quote, he was talking so much about the wheelchair. He'd say, I'm going to be sitting in this wheelchair in an old people's home, watch, being watched by old people. Do you think I could put up with it, Ralph? He had an image of being strapped into it, unable to move, and said, Ralph, there's an old lady crawling across the floor towards me, and she's about to fondle my balls. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, uh, the outcome of the 2004 election devastated him like it devastated many people but what are you gonna do i wasn't devastated yeah i know you weren't but a lot of people were i know uh and that was a different time i wouldn't vote for him now there'd be no way but now one was older had gotten married and had given hunter and and uh, sandy a grandson named will near the end of 2004 Hunter began saying goodbye to the places and people he loved. When friends would visit, they would get lengthy emotional goodbyes. During the holiday that year, he started calling dozens of friends to leave them messages. In January 2005, Hunter planned on writing about the production of Sean Penn's movie, All the King's Men, in New Orleans for Playboy. He wanted to go alone. This trip may have been the last straw for Hunter. While there... He wanted to attend the cast and crew party. The party was on the second floor of a restaurant with no ramps or elevators. He sat downstairs and drank alone. He was too proud to let them pick him up in the chair and carry him up. He told Brinkley, quote, My time has come to die, Dougie. Anita was called to come care for him. By the time she had got there, he was emaciated from not eating for two days. He was also put on painkillers that made his mind foggy hard for him to write. The Playboy article was scrapped. A month later, Juan and his wife Jennifer and their son Will came to visit after a trip to Italy. 
Juan and Hunter became much closer over the last 15 years, and Will called Hunter Ace. Aww. Hunter wrote Will a letter saying, quote, Walk tall, kick ass, learn to speak Arabic, love music, and never forget you come from a long line of truth seekers, lovers, and warriors. He wrote Anita a note, too, on February 16th, quote, Football season is over. No more games. No more bombs. No more walking. No more fun. No more swimming. 67. That is 17 past 50. 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I'm always bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. You're getting greedy. Act your old age. Relax. This won't hurt. That evening, he shot a pellet gun near Anita. Too close for Anita's liking as she he shot it towards her back and it hit like this gong that she had sitting by her and freaked her the fuck out. She yelled at him and went to the basement for the night. He could hear her crying, but he couldn't go down to comfort her. That night, he gave Juan several family heirlooms. They talked about Hunter's death and the funeral he had always wanted. The next day, Hunter woke, polished his pistol, and resumed the business of being Hunter S. Thompson. He apologized to Anita for shooting by her. She accepted, even though she was still quite angry. She said she was going to the gym, and Hunter gave her a, quote, weird look. When she got to the gym before uh, her workout, she called Hunter. Instead of the speaker treatment that he usually gave everyone, he actually picked up the phone and gave her his undivided attention. The call lasted for 10 minutes and 22 seconds. He told her to come home after the workout, and they would work on the column together. Then she heard him put the phone down and heard some clicking. She listened for a minute, and then she hung up. The clicking sound was Hunter loading his 45 caliber pistol. She hung up just in time to not hear him put the barrel in his mouth and pull the trigger. Juan was the one that found him in the kitchen, sitting slumped over his typewriter, he told his wife and son, then called Bob Broadus. Juan called Anita and left her a message, quote, Anita, you have to come home now. He's dead. Before the body was loaded into the hearse, Juan, Jennifer, Anita, Broadus, Fire Chief Rick Ballantyne, and friend and neighbor Bob Ralphelson stood around Hunter on the gurney and raised a glass of Chevis Regal and read from the Songs of the Doomed. Juan and Doug Brinkley decided that there was enough unpublished writings from Hunter that they could slowly release new works from him for years so his legacy wouldn't burn out. So a lot of times when people have all these big collections of stuff that they've written and haven't released, they like to release them all at once, this big dump of production, which is great, makes a lot of money, but they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to dump everything. They said, oh, we got plenty of time. We're going to release it little little by little over the years so people for the next few generations won't forget who Hunter S. Thompson is. He was cremated the next day and memorial plans began. Anita sent Hunter's famous red IBM Selectric 2 to Bob Dylan for thanks for years of inspiration. inspiration. Years of inspiration. Thank you, my love. On March 5th, a six-hour invitation-only memorial was held at the Hotel Jerome. Life-size cutouts of Hunter greeted the guests. Jack Nicholson, Johnny Depp, Bill Murray, and Jan Warner among them. 
black thong panties with gonzo double thumb fists on the crotch were displayed on the tables. He's not even alive anymore. <laughs> it's still it's still the same old shit. Uh, bartender served beer, liquor, and jello shots. Many spoke. Davidson came to say goodbye to yet another brother. And friend Cheryl Fymer sang Amazing Grace a cappella. The memorial at the Jerome was moving, but not the end. Hunter had spoken for years about wanting his ashes shot out of a cannon while Mr. Tambourine Man played over the loudspeaker, and his loved ones planned on making it happen. This would be an expensive undertaking. Luckily, he had made some powerful and wealthy friends. The top of that list? Johnny Depp, saying that, quote, I know somewhere in his crooked mind he knew that I was the only one loyal enough or insane enough to attempt it. Depp hired Hollywood Production Company to build the fist, the tower, and the landscape for the second funeral at a cost of $2.5 million. Fucking A. Yes, they had to do uh, not, they didn't have Kickstarter then, but they had to do a sort of a fundraiser to get all the money together. Depp gave Hunter the farewell he always wanted. 150 friends and family came to Colorado on August 20th. The monument was 100 feet high, and the fireworks would go over 200 feet above that. When it got dark, and after many close friends and some celebrities spoke, like uh, John Kerry showed up, and everybody who was at, most of the celebrities who were at the first funeral showed up, Juan drove Hunter's famous red convertible and parked it under the fist. The weather started to turn. It was starting to sprinkle. The wind was picking up. A drape fell from the monument, revealing a dagger, and on top, a double-thumbed fist grasping a peyote button. I will post pictures online. Six spotlights hit the shadows, projecting onto the low-hanging clouds like the bat symbol. Onlookers cheered, and Norman Greenbaum speared in the sky, blared from the speakers. I'm going up to the spirit in the spirit of the sky. You know. Yeah. Yes, I know. Then... The fireworks began, shooting 200 feet into the air above the monument as the music echoed through the valley. Three rounds of color and smoke. And then the canister of Hunter's ashes shot into the sky and his remains fanned across the bluffs and the valley of Al Farm, just as he has planned. As the smoke slowly drifted across the valley, the crowd applauded the end of the ceremony and Anita Thompson yelled, We love you, Hunter. Now the sound system played Hunter's favorite song, Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. And almost as a final ha-ha fuck you joke, now the ashes drifted, as Hunter must have known they would, back towards the guests standing in front of the viewing pavilion. As the guests stood holding their glasses, the ashes floated and settled onto them and their drinks. Tom Cochran smiled, lifting his glass, and said, quote, Here's to you, Hunter. And that, listeners, was the life of the one and only Hunter S. Thompson. That was fabulous. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, God, I read that last part. And I was like, of course, of course. I saw it coming as soon as you of said that the course. started raining yes. and getting windy. I was like, oh, it's, I bet his ashes just how He back. knew somehow that that was going to happen. Uh, his ashes are going to cover everybody. Yes, that would. <sighs> this has been 
a difficult story to to get through. But out of all of them, this has probably been my favorite story to get through. Honestly, because it's 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 just. I think it's been the most interesting after thing and hilarious. Just him as a person, I don't like so much because of you know the racist stuff, the beating up on his you know wife and everything. That stuff disgusts me. But as far as stories go, this story has been in fucking incredible. Yes, his antics, his uh, his petty rivalries, and his his just being, you know just weird and yeah. doing shit on purpose to piss people off. And, and the thing is, this four-part series that we just did literally just scratches the surface of all the stuff that is out there. Um, I, again, Outlaw Journalist is a great book. It gives you a ton of information. But if you want the really good stories just to laugh at, you might not get to know a lot of the facts about him, you know, dates and times and everything, but just stories in general. Get Gonzo by Jan Warner. That that book is just filled from front to back with amazing stories that you I was laughing out loud while I was reading that book. It is great. So that that's Hunter S. Thompson. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Um, next week we start our Christmas series. It's uh it's going to be another decent size series. I'm, I'm, I just literally started working on it, uh, so uh, I hope I can, you know, get it all done. I'll have the first episode yeah, done, out, yeah. but yeah, I, yeah, it's uh, the book for that one not near as entertaining as the two books for for this one. So it was a little bit harder to get through because some of it's boring. But I'm doing my best to make sure that the the stories that I'm telling aren't boring. That we're giving you the facts. Not going to tell you who the who the author is. You have to come back, but it's the Christmas series, so you could probably figure that out from me just saying Christmas. And if you can't, then uh, come back next Monday and you'll hear. Figure it out. Figure it out. All right. Well, Stephanie, let's do our socials. Okay, on Twitter and Instagram, we are at OpenAFING Book, and I am at ECJBAT. I am YoungETAM6 on Twitter, YoungETAM on Instagram. You can email us at OpenAFingBook at gmail.com. Tell if there's any authors you'd like for us to cover or books you'd like for us to, to talk about. Stephanie, or Goodreads? We are at Goodreads.com slash OpenAFING Book. Yeah, uh, we still have plenty of stickers left on Patreon. Uh, your donations go to make this show better than what it is. Uh, Patreon.com slash open a effing book. You can go to my wife's Etsy page, Etsy.shop. X, Etsy, no, no, no. I will do it. Etsy.com slash shop slash Stephanie Young Art. Yeah, you got it. I get it every time. I just fuck it up. Okay. So you don't get it every time. No, you try I to do. Say it too fast I do. And you add extra S's when there doesn't need to be. Extra and they S's. should know by you get now. Tongue tied. They should know. If tongue's not tied. It's flapping around like a wet fish at the time. <laughs> uh, come back for our weekday show where we cover four books of the week. Stephanie usually has a handful of books that she plans on buying that I didn't know about, and some book news. Uh, rate and review us wherever you listen. Uh, wherever you're listening right now, rate us. Review us if you can. Subscribe, follow all the podcast apps and everything. Anywhere you can 
can listen. We're on Amazon now. Yes, we are. We are. So listen there if you feel the need to. Go to your local library, your local bookstore. Buy a book from a local independent author from a local independent bookstore. Best thing you can do to help those people out right now. And you say it out with a little dance. Yep. Because I say it every week. I say it twice cute. a week. I say it still twi- dancing. I say it twice a week. And I just want to get it out there so everybody knows. And Stephanie, I think that's it. That is it. All right. Woo. That was tough. It was a long one. Yes, it was. Yeah. All right. Well, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Eat those leftovers. That's and- not. You keep messing up the name.